Well, church, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, and I'm delighted that you're here with us. Uh, and Mother's Day is an important day in the life of the church because we celebrate all of the mothers in the church, not merely the biological mothers, but the spiritual mothers as well. So it doesn't matter whether God didn't bless you with children because you are blessed as a spiritual mother within the church. God looks at you as an important part to evangelize and nurture and affirm and to teach the older women, to teach the younger women how to avoid the dangers in the culture. And it's so important. This is not a secondary role. This is a primary role. It is a high calling within the church. And it is a high calling within every woman's life. Uh, and so God has given you that gift within the church to teach, to affirm, to nurture, and to love in every possible way. And I could say that in my own life, my own mother taught me the nature of love, taught me the nature of love. Uh, yes, my father taught me theology, but my mother taught me love. Uh, and so I want to quote the words of Abraham Lincoln, who said it about himself and said it for me as well, all I am or ever hope to be, I owe to my dear mother. God bless you, mothers. God bless you. <clears throat> and now today I'm going to start the first of a five-part sermon series on the life of Elijah, one of the greatest prophets in the entire Old Testament. Uh, what an incredible man. This is a simple man that God raised up, just as we heard in that song. He raised him up to use him as a mighty man of God. But he was a simple man coming out of nowhere, uh, and yet God used him in a mighty way to become a tremendous prophet, a tremendous spokesman of God, uh, a tremendous defender of the faith against a very evil king and queen, against a very evil time in Israel. Uh, and as we begin this series, I want you to understand that Elijah was so great that in Matthew 17 at the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus himself is transfigured before the disciples, they see in the sky transfigured with Christ also Moses and Elijah. Uh, that's how important Elijah is. And when you go through the scriptures, there are only two people who never experienced physical death. One is Enoch, and the other is Elijah. Elijah never experienced physical death. We know from reading scripture that a, a chariot of fire with horses came down out of the sky, and as he's standing there next to uh, Elisha, that he steps into this chariot and is taken into heaven. Can you imagine? That's the way to go. <laughs> See, that's my prayer. That's, that's, the, that's the way to go. All right, but you know what? There was only one that went that way. So what an amazing, perfect life that we see and aspire to. Uh, and so when you study the lives of these great individuals, you must also study history because you know that everything uh, in Scripture relates to context. What was the time? Who were the people? What were the, why was the Scripture the way it was? Uh, and it's never as more important as context than in the life of Elijah. 
and he lived somewhere between the period of, of the period of 700 to 750 BC, and it was a period of great godlessness in Israel, great evil. There had been 200 years really of evil kings, uh, and there had been six dark decades, six dark decades. Uh, and evil had uh, really prevailed throughout Egypt. Uh, and then, as if to make things worse, uh, Ahab becomes king, uh, and Jezebel, a, a woman who was not an Israelite, but came from a foreign land, he married her, uh, and this again underscores the issue of why we always talk about do not be unequally yoked, because when you go and you attach yourself to someone who is not full of God, this is what happens. Well, she brought uh, Baal worship and idolatry into Israel. And so they become king and queen, and it would be like appointing Bonnie and Clyde as king and queen. <laughs> I can't make it any other way. Uh, and so her, her purpose in life was to destroy any evidence of, of Judaism. She wanted to destroy the prophets. Uh, and so you get an insight into how evil these times are by looking at the board at 1 Kings 16, verse 31. He, and that is Ahab, not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, but he also married Jezebel, daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and began to serve Baal and worship him. This is the putative king of Israel. Can you imagine how evil it had become? And, and it says here that he, he had no problem with the prior sins of the prior king. Uh, he considered it trivial, and he marries this, this woman. He becomes unequally yoked, and the kingdom descends further into Israel. Uh, and so they worship Baal. Baal was a god of the weather, uh, and it was tr strictly a pagan worship. Uh, and we soon learn that Jezebel becomes the dominant partner in the marriage. She effectively winds up running the kingdom. Uh, and she was the one that initiated Baal worship. Uh, and so it was after that she initiated Baal worship that it found itself deep in the heart of the people of Israel. And so Baal was worshipped as the god of weather, the god of rain, the god of fertility, uh, who controlled the seasons, the crops, and the land, and the wickedness in Israel only got greater. Only got greater. In spiritual terms, this was a, a time of complete and utter despair. Look at 1 Kings 16, verses 32 to 33. He, that is Ahab, set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah pole and did more to arouse the anger of the Lord, the God of Israel, than did all the kings of Israel before him. It is the principal commandment. Thou shalt have no other God than me. And there they were, the king of Israel violating that. And so you see how evil perpetuates itself, how it can get into a place that was formerly good and get bad. These are lessons for us, even in our own lives, as we see the slippery slope of evil. And so suddenly now, within this context, Elijah appears on the scene without any announcement. Look at 1 Kings 17, verse 1. 
And this is the first time you will see Elijah. Now Elijah, the Tishbite, from Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Wow. Short and sweet. No rain, no dew, nothing coming from the sky until I say otherwise. Can you imagine what that had to be like? Uh, Plunging full force into the face of evil and wickedness, God sends this prophet. And so we quickly learn three things about this man. We learn his name, his origin, and his style. And what we see here as to his name, the the Jewish translation of his name is the Lord is my God. Uh, And when he burst on the scene, his name proclaimed, I have one God, one God alone, his name is Jehovah. The second point of significance is Elijah's place of origin. He was called Elijah the Tishbite. This was on the other side of the Jordan River. It was a place which was relatively wilderness, and those people lived a rugged outdoor life. It was a place of solitude, Uh, and people that came from that area were generally very muscular from working outdoors. And so what we see next is his style. He comes into the king. He's not uh, embarrassed or afraid in any way. He comes into the king. He points his finger at the king and said, I serve the one Lord, and at my word, there will be neither rain nor dew for three years. Wow. Wow. Wow, what kind of courage do you have to have to do that, to know that God is with you, that God says, stand in the gap and I will be there with you, to stand against the culture, to stand against the tide, to stand against the prevailing opinion of all others that you could go there and deliver the message. Uh, And he said it simply, the Lord God whom I serve, surely there shall be no other God. He shakes his fist in the hands of the devil effectively. And he travels solo. He doesn't have a posse. There's no army. He's standing there alone. And this is part of the message for us today. God is looking for men and women who can stand alone in the gap, who can stand and speak against the culture. We're in a wicked culture. You see it now this last week or so when the, when the uh, draft opinion of the Supreme Court is released And it's not even law yet, and you see the opponents come out and look to destroy that. Look to frighten to justices, as if they can take justice and turn it on its head. This is the culture that God has called you to oppose. This is what God expects from you all. This is how you have to stand tall for God. This is how you stand alone. Men and women in the scripture who gave us us this context, Elijah, David, Esther, Moses, and Joseph, all of them, all of them stood alone for God against the culture. Our Lord is searching, you see, searching for people who can do that. He's not looking for people who are mediocre, who are lukewarm. We cannot dissolve into the background of culture so that nobody will know who we are. That's not what God wants. God wants you to stand up 
And Elijah teaches that this is what the Lord requires of us. Now, several examples and lessons merge, you see, from this life. First, God looks for special people to use at special times, a special man or woman to shine the light against the prevailing culture. God didn't find him in the palace. God didn't find him in the synagogues. God found him out in the wilderness in Tishba. That's where he found this guy. Uh, and, and he didn't find him walking around with his head down in gloom. He found him there where he saw what his heart was like. Of all places, Tishbeth, of all places, someone who had the courage to say, this culture is wrong. And if I have to tell the king himself and the queen herself, I will do it. In our culture today, we need men and women who can do this, to stand up for God. And I pray that your hearts resonate with this message. The question for you today is how is your stature with God and how is your integrity with God as you sit here today? As we are longing, and the question is, are you longing to be with the in crowd? Are you looking to be loved uh, and caressed by friends who are maybe not godly? but looking to really be lifted up by, by an evil culture? Are you afraid to stand where you are because you don't want to be called a zealot or you don't want to be called a prude? Uh, these are people who find themselves in comfort in the court of Ahab. Uh, they can never bring themselves to stand in the gap with Elijah, which is what God wants us to do. Now, second, God's methods are surprising. Uh, God did not raise up an army to destroy Ahab and Elijah, uh, and destroy Ahab and Jezebel, excuse me. Instead, God did the unimaginable. He called a solo man from the wilderness, choosing someone like Elijah. Now, right now, I want you to think about the position that God has called for you. Think about it. Where you are, the impact that you can have in your family, in your friends, in your country club, in your neighborhood. And I ask you, are you standing tall for God at this moment, just where God has positioned you? This is between you and God. Third, we stand before God himself every moment of our lives. When we are standing in the gap, feeling alone, you're not alone. You're there with God as God stood there with Elijah. And so when the opportunity comes, will God find us ready and willing to stand up? That's why I'm so thrilled that we're enforcing the issue of apologetics. And you saw that I sent you a series of sound bites this week. I sent it to you because it ties in precisely with apologetics. I want you all to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have in your heart. So when people ask you, why are you a Christian? You don't mumble around, but instead you have precise, clear-cut, soundbite answers ready to effectuate change in the world. Uh, and that's what God wants. That's the kind of commitment he wants to see in your life. And so if your Christianity has not put that kind of steel in your backbone, well, there's something wrong. And you need to ask God through the Holy Spirit to change that to give you that strength. God wants people totally committed. Uh, immediately after Elijah delivered this message to Ahab, you can imagine 
the resonance of that message as he delivers this and the hatred of Jezebel towards him, God spoke again to him. Now, that's interesting because we might have thought, well, you know, after he did this, maybe he should hang around the palace. Maybe he should talk to people to be impressed with this guy. No, God doesn't do that. God immediately says to him in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 to 5, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have directed the ravens to supply you with food there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. You see, God doesn't want you to stay in a place where maybe it's hostile, where maybe these people want to kill you, uh, where maybe you might be filled with pride. God takes you away from that and brings you to a place of isolation. And I would say to you that for all of us, we will spend some times in our lives at what I call the Kerith Ravine, uh, at the brook that is there, where God is speaking to us and preparing us for greater service. You see, Elijah did not realize that the Lord turned the Kerith Ravine into a boot camp. He didn't understand that. You see, many people would say, he's perfect just the way he is. No, he's not perfect just the way he is. He's a spokesman for God, but he's not a prophet of God yet. I will make you a prophet of God. Uh, and so here, there he would be trained to do battle, treacherous battle with Satan himself, with Jezebel and Ahab in the years to come. And so we see the surprising nature of God uh, in, the, in, in this context. Elijah had demonstrated courage in the face of the king, uh, and you might think it was good sense, let him stay there. But in that's human logic. That is not divine logic. God's plan is always full of surprise and ministry. God had things he wanted to accomplish in the life of Elijah. Uh, and as such, God took him to a place of isolation. Here he would be prepared for greater service. Can you imagine that you're brought there and God says, I'm going to have the ravens feed you? The birds are going to feed me? The birds are going to take care of you? That's right. You don't have to worry about anything. I'm going to supply everything that you need. The birds are going to be your concierge. What kind of God do I have? And then I'm going to have the water there at the babbling brook, even as you turn off the faucet to Israel, I'm going to have that. Yes, you are. You're going to have everything that you need because I'm preparing you for greater service. Uh, and so here you see that he's being taught to trust God. You see, I'm your God. I'm there with you. When you say something, I stand there with you. I'm with you. I protect you. I lift you up. I affirm you. Uh, and often you see in the Old Testament, uh, the names of places carry symbolic messages. And here, uh, that's certainly the case with the Kerith Ravine. Because in Hebrew, the term Kerith means to cut down to cut down, to prune, to change, to perfect, to cut down, to take the old man away, and to make a greater man. And that is exactly what took place at the Kerith Ravine. Thus, Elijah would stay there, being fed by ravens, by this bubbling brook, and he would be cut off from all involvement in other outside activities that might stimulate him. God didn't want him involved in other outside activities. He wanted him to pray 
and isolate and to understand exactly who God was and how he would take care of every single thing that he needed. Uh, and so as he emerges from the Kerith Ravine in the months to come, he will now become a man of God, a prophet of God. And so when he first comes on the scene, Elijah is God's mouthpiece, stands before King Ahab and announces that a dramatic drought is coming. At the same time, Jezebel is determined to rid Israel of all the prophets of God. All the prophets of Jehovah are now under death threats. And so this is a drought that's not for a week or a month. This is a drought that will go on for three and a half years. All kinds of death will prevail in the wake of this drought. And in moving Elijah to the Kerith Ravine, God provided protectively a place where Elijah could be, where he could hide, where he could grow, where God would change him. He wanted to protect Elijah. Uh, and then he wanted him to become trained as a man of God. This is important for us to learn, that as God brings us closer to him, he protects us and he trains us in so many ways. Now, God tells Elijah that he will drink from the brook and that the ravens will provide food for him. Uh, and the ravens will be God's catering service. In essence, God said to Elijah, you do not need to be in the spotlight. You don't need to be famous. You need to be isolated, uh, as people will reflect on the work that I am going to do. But Elijah was ready to serve the Lord in submission. That's the key word, submission. I'm yours, God. I will do whatever you call me to do. Look at 1 Kings 17, verse 6. The ravens brought him bread, and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. This must have been an incredible experience. Can you imagine just sitting there, knowing that God brought you there, and in the morning the birds come and bring you food, and at night the birds come and bring you food, and there's water, and meanwhile all of Israel is turned into a dust bowl, and God is protectively taking care of you. Uh, but here's the thing. We can't always live by a bubbling brook. And there will come a time, there will come a time when the brook will dry up because God has another call in the life of Elijah. Because you see, God builds our character. And after a while, the bubbling brooks of our lives dry up. Now, have we all not experienced the bubbling brook in our life? Have we all had things in our life where God had given you a business or family uh, or finances or a career? Uh, in fact, possibly even a magnificent ministry. God has given you all of that, and then suddenly and without warning, the brook dries up. I could tell you that that happened to me in my own life in prior churches. Where, where suddenly God had a call on my life that it was time to leave, and I would never leave on my own because that's the nature of the character that I had. I would only leave when the brook dried up. You understand? When the brook was turned off, when I had no choice but to leave. And I would say this. You reflect on your own life. You think about that in your own life, where you are, even to the extent that many of you are here you're here because the brooks have dried up in your life. And God called you to a new brook, to a new place, to a new ministry. This is a significant issue that we have to understand. 
understanding the fact that God doesn't keep the water flowing forever. And so some of us, we get upset because we may have lost a mate or we may have lost a child or our businesses may have failed. And some of us think that God has to give us that forever. No, he does not. He is concerned about your eternal life. He is concerned about your ministry and the work of God that he has for you. And he recognizes that for most of us, he has to stop the brook because we will never take the next state. This is his sovereign right. And really, when it takes place, what does it mean? It tells you that God loves you. The very fact that the brook has dried up means he knows who you are. He knows where you are. It's not a judgment in your life. It's an expression of love. And we're going to see that as we study uh, the life of Elijah. You know, our, our, our human feelings tell us that, well, once God gives us this water, once he gives us this gift, this business, this relationship, that he should never take it away. And I can tell you something, that I look in my own life, I see the relationships that I've had for years. In many cases, I don't have any of those friendships any longer. I live in a place where I can say truthfully, I don't have one friend in my neighborhood. All my friends are here in the church. This is what God has called me to do. You are the people God has given me as family. This is what God has given you. And so some of us have had to be pruned from those relationships of people that were not advancing your spiritual life. Can I get an amen on that? You know, that's not an easy thing to say. You know, that's not an easy thing to say because you knew people for years. You were friends with them in a, in a variety of circumstances. But guess what? God has a higher call for your life. And that's why the brook dries up. It even dries up in terms of friendships. Friendship. So should, you should never take those things for granted that God has given you. He looks at your entire life and calls you to a greater purpose. You are all here to serve him, and he has a mighty plan for all your life. Don't ever think that because the brook is dried up, he's forgotten you. He hasn't forgotten you. He loves you more today than he did yesterday in every possible way as he's looking to advance your life, and he is concerned about you. God says to you in the middle of the dried up brook, I have you in the palm of my hand. I am concerned about you. I love you. I have greater things in mind. I have a greater purpose for your life. I have greater ministry in, in for your life. And that's what he said to Elijah. That's what he said to Elijah. And you're going to see as we study Elijah, the great things that Elijah will do once the brook dried up. We need to trust him as we abide by these brooks as they dry up in our lives. And we understand it's because he loves us and cares for us. And so God had not forgotten Elijah. That dried up brook was merely a direct result of Elijah's own prayers. He prayed that the faucet would be turned off. Look at James chapter 5, verse 17. Elijah was a human being even as we are. I love that line. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Effectively, he was living in the result of his own prayer life. God is relentless. God doesn't change. He never ceases his training regimens. 
every day that Elijah was in the Kareth Ravine. Even as he was being given food and water, God was training him up for the day when the faucet would be turned off. And so God changes. He changes our circumstances. He changes our surroundings. He changes our friends. And yes, he even changes the church that you used to go to. You understand? Things change. God changes. God dries up the brook. Don't sit there and cry because the brook dried up. Instead, thank God that he loves you and has a plan for your life, and that plan involves even greater service for him. You're going to see what Elijah is going to do. Amen, Lord. Amen. This is all about our spiritual journey to maturity. This is what it's about, understanding what's, what it's about. And I know that some of you, all of you, have suffered some pain, have suffered some loss, all right, have suffered inconvenience. But I want to assure you that everything in your life is within the plan of God because you've given him your life. You have pledged him your life. And so as he holds you in the palm of his hand, why would you think that he has suddenly forgotten you? He has not forgotten you. He has a greater call on your life now than he ever did before. And so there are four lessons, you see, that apply to us today uh, from Cherith, from the ravine. First, we must be willing to sit aside as we are wait to be used. That's one of the things we have to do. We have to wait on God. We have to sit there quietly. We have to pray. Uh, we have to commune. We have to go to his church. We have to worship even as we wait to be used by God. We need to experience that soft voice that will come to us to tell us what he expects next, the voice of God. Second, we need God's direction and provision. And here's the thing. When God directs you as he will, he provides for you. He just doesn't send you into the desert without a plan. He sends you to a place where there will be ravens and where there will be water in every way. That's how God directs us and provides for us. Third, we have to learn to trust God one day at a time. When I think about my own life, I would say that this is probably one of the issues that I have to come to terms with. Trusting God one day at a time. You see, God doesn't tell you what he's got planned for tomorrow. He only tells you what he's got planned for today. And so as you step out for today and give him your life, you have to trust him for, for tomorrow. We have not mastered living one day at a time. You think it's been easy for me uh, these last several years to wait upon God for when he would give us a church? Do you think that at times I was wondering, Lord, what's your plan? But you see, God says to me, John, wait on me. Wait on me. Don't presume to make judgments that I haven't given you. Wait on me. And what you see is when you wait on God, God gives you the greatest gifts that you could ever have the greatest gifts. And so you see that. It's interesting here when you study the life of Elijah that God never told him what the second steps would be. Go and speak to the king. He did. Then go and stay in Cherith. He did. He doesn't say the brook will dry up, but the brook will dry up. And when the brook dries up, we're going to see uh, as we study this that he's going to then tell him to travel 100 miles to another village where he will meet a widow who will take care of him. Can you imagine? 
He doesn't know who this woman is, but that's what God tells him to do. Uh, and so he does not tell him what would happen after the brook dries up, but just one day at a time. And so this leads, you see, to the fourth lesson, and that is a dried-up brook is often God's sign of blessing and love. It's not disappointment. It's not judgment. Uh, it's, not, it's, it's acceptance and love. That's what the dried-up brook means when you've committed yourself to him. Look at the examples of Abraham, all right? Right after all the blessings and all the covenant promises, everything that he has given, he is then directed to sacrifice his one and only son, Isaac. You think that's a dried-up brook? I don't understand it, God. How can this be? You promised me, you know, that my people would be like the sands on the ocean floor. And yet, now, my son is being directed to be sacrificed. Yes, that's a dried-up brook. Because what it means is God is testing you to take you to the next level in your life. Yes, it's not pleasing. Yes, it's often painful. But for most of us, we wouldn't take the step to get closer to him, the next step in our spiritual journey, unless the brook is dried up. And you see it also in the life of Paul. Here's God using Paul mightily, and he's on one of his greatest missionary trips to Lystra. And there in Lystra, as he's giving the, the gospel message, he is stoned and left for dead. How's that working out for you, Paul? Is it good? You like being a missionary? You glad you took up this gospel? It's a little harder than when you were a Pharisee, huh? It's a dried up brook because God knew that he had to be perfected and strengthened and affirmed. And so, yes, he was led, left for death, but God lifted him up. God brought him back to life, and God gave him, even, gave him even greater ministry, greater challenges, greater things that he would do for God. And look at Joseph. It's the same thing. You see it with Joseph as his brothers sell him into slavery, and then he's put into prison. What do you think? You think it was a good thing? You think he said while he's in prison, this is great? Because I know I'm going to be prime minister of Egypt. Are you nuts? You're in prison. You don't have a chance of getting out of here. You don't know anybody. But you see how God is? He molds you and he perfects you. And he put him into that prison so he would come into contact with the two closest people that the king had who would be sent to prison. And as a result of that dried up brook, God would elevate Joseph and he would make him prime minister uh, of Egypt, where he would be second in command. This is what God does. This is my promise to you in your life. Yes, we have all experienced dried up brooks. We have all gone through periods of disappointment and change. We have lost friendships. We have lost churches. But God has given you an even greater gift. Whatever he has taken out of your life, he has replaced it with something better. I can honestly say that I have better friends, closer relationships today than I've ever had in my whole life. When I look at this church, I love each and every one of you, and I feel the incredible love that we have towards, towards each other. I was even told that by one of the performers at the McVeigh's concert that so many of you came up and told him how much you loved him and cared for him. He said, your church is un unbelievable that people do that. I have not experienced that in any other church. That's because God has called you to be here. Yes, 
You came here because it was a dried up brook. Look, nobody knows this better than I do, all right? Nobody knows it better than I do. Nobody experienced the pain as much as I experienced. But I came to understand that God was guiding me. He was taking me. He was holding me. He was creating for me for greater service to him. And so here are the lessons as God teaches us about the brook. Four obstacles of our own lives as we come to terms with this. I want you to reflect on that. First, pride must be overcome. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, but I must decrease. This is submission. And so don't sit there when you get the brook dried up and start complaining. How could this happen to me? God, how could you abandon me? Me, I've given you so much of my life. That's pride. That's pride. He's sovereign God. If he decides to turn the faucet off, he turns the faucet off. But he's got a greater call on your life. And that's what we need to understand. Second, we have to overcome fear. Fear. As our fears are overcome, we learn to walk by faith. Look, Elijah was sent to this remote place. He didn't know what was going to happen on day two or day three. He didn't know if the birds were going to come back day after day. But God told him they would. And then God prepared him. He doesn't tell us what comes down next in our lives. He prepares us just day by day. Then we have to overcome resentment. It's easy to become resentful. It's easy to sit back and look at the changes that God has wrought in your life and to resent those changes, to not be happy with those changes. I'd say when that happens, bow before the throne of God. Ask God to take away those feelings of resentment. God will continue to grind us down. Lord, make me everything you want me to be. Everything you want me to be. That's the prayer. Everything you want me to be. And then finally, we have to break down long-standing habits. These are often deep-seated attitudes where we think how God ought to act in our lives, where we think God wants us to be. And in fact, it's not where God wants us to be. It's where you want to be because you're comfortable there. Well, guess what? Maybe God doesn't want you to be that comfortable. Maybe some discomfort in your life is good, where you get out of that zone and you look to serve him. And so no matter how long we live walking with God and walking with Jesus, we still must pass some time in the ravine of Cherith. All of us will do that. When Elijah made that trip, when he made that trip, he was a spokesman for God. But when he left, he was a prophet of God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I thank you for the words that you have given us, Father, this incredible example of this simple man who gave of his all to you, and you recreated him. You made him a mighty prophet of God. Lord, you're teaching us about the ravine in Kareth. You're teaching us about what it means to stand by the brook when you provide for us, and yet there comes a time when the water is turned off where the bubbling brook stops, Lord. And we understand now that we're not, we're not angry about that because we know that you love us and care for us and walk with us and are molding and perfecting us. Be with our people. Let this lesson resonate in their hearts. Protect them this week as they come back to continue to worship you next week as we put all of this in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. Amen.